This, this is the Second Second Story Podcast. Welcome back to the Second Story Podcast. I'm Max Spitz. Do you ever wonder about how much you actually know about your favorite musician, actor, or celebrity? Do you imagine what you'd say if you met them before you remember that they'd have no idea who you are? These intense one-way relationships or interactions are known as parasocial relationships and often provide comfort, familiarity, and escape. In this story, recorded at Pub 626 in Chicago in March 2019, teller Andy Bayades explores his own parasocial journey, beginning in adolescence and growing with him for many years to follow. Second Story is proud to present Babylon by bus. It's 1994. I'm standing in front of a tour bus in the parking lot of the Blue Ocean Music Hall in Salisbury, Massachusetts. It's August, about 10 p.m., and I'm next in line to see Ziggy Marley and the Melody Makers. I should be excited, but I'm not. The doors to the bus open and the fans who got in before me leave. Finally, my turn. I put my right foot on the step. Okay, but before I tell you about Ziggy and me, I really need you to understand how I felt about the Marley family. And to understand that, you have to know where I came from. There's nothing wrong with my hometown of Billerica, Massachusetts, but it was wrong for me. Grown-ups would always ask me, what sport do you play? Like, they're, like, they were asking me, how old are you? Like, there couldn't be a negative answer. And when I said, I don't play sports, they acted like I stared at the wall after school. The popular kids would say things and everyone would laugh, and I'd think to myself, he just said, boo, woo. That's not funny. <laughs> Why are they laughing? Why am I pretending to laugh? My whole family were loud, extroverted talkers, prone to making the same mistakes over and over. I was a quiet, introverted listener who spent far too much energy thinking about himself. My father, a six-foot-tall, curly-haired, macho telephone company worker whose sport had been baseball, could not make sense of me. I remember when he took me to baseball camp, I saw the pained expression on his face as ground balls careened onto my shoulder or over my head or one time in my face. Was still working on that. He told one of the dads next to him, but it felt a little more like he said, was still trying to figure out what this kid's good for. I wanted to be like my father, but I wasn't. He acted without thinking while I watched myself watching myself watch myself. <laughs> I watched myself to fix what was wrong with me, but I couldn't figure it out. I looked for communion in the world around me, but the world around me was Bill Ricca. Like most teenagers, I tried to find myself in music, but this was pre-internet, so my options were as eclectic as the menu at a Cracker Barrel. <laughs> Nothing spoke to me. But one day, when I was 17, I came home to a small pile of cassette tapes on the kitchen table. What's this? I asked my mom. They're samples that George got from his record store. He thought you might like them. Now, on an emotional level, my initial reaction was, pardon me while I melt these into balls so you can efficiently shove them up George's ass, because George was the guy my mom was cheating on my dad with. He had no intention of giving my mother the third wedding that she wanted, but for some reason, he sent me albums. I needed new music, so I said nothing. I took the tapes, I went into my room. 
That's how I discovered Bob Marley's legend. Do you remember finding something you loved when you were a teenager? It's like you weren't sure if it was okay to love it because no one said you should. And then you don't know if you're the cool kid who discovered something or the kid with a secret collection of decorative soaps. I had never even heard of reggae, but I loved every note on every track. And the lyrics, I had no idea what a Rasta was, missed the sexual innuendo and stir it up, and figured I Shot the Sheriff was a cover of an Eric Clapton song. But something in my sensitive, alienated 17-year-old spirit was ignited by the fight in this man and his absolute assurance that he was right and the world was broken and stupid and it didn't matter what anyone thought of him or his people because he would have his song heard and he would never have pretended to laugh at boo-woo. <laughs> I remember soon after I'd collected all of his music, I was lying awake listening to Bob on my Walkman and the song Waiting in Vain comes on and I'm absorbing every note and something in me just opens, like a thousand songs of my own suddenly want to be written or sung or screamed into the air and I just weep simultaneously for the pain of not knowing what to do with this energy and the beauty of that fucking song and the deep cavernous abyss between me and my communion with the world around me. I am Bob and Bob is me. I'm crying, but he's got me. And I don't mean this figuratively. The ghost of this man is with me and somehow he will get me through this because he believes in me. So I went to a state college in central Massachusetts and I joined the radio station WXPL. For my first show, I had made dozens of notes because I wanted my listeners to understand Bob Marley's world and his music's context. And who better to do that than this white boy from Billerica? So I went on the air and bombed. I had seen pump up the volume and for sure that didn't help. In between songs, I talked so much, for so long in fact, that at 1 a.m. on a Monday, I got a call from a heckler. And he's like disagreeing with me over what the word jaw means. And then eventually I scream fuck you into the phone and shut the ringer off. And then I get, and then I get the yips and I can't get the transitions right. And I'm forgetting to shut off the tape after fading in the next song. So two songs are playing at once. I mean this in both senses. It was a shit show. Over time, I got a little better, but I was still easily flustered and so not cool. When I messed up, I would apologize on the air. Like, picture two songs playing at once, and then the DJ's like, oops, sorry about that. Let me just, uh... okay, yeah, here's the song. But the mistakes got fewer, and I expanded my, my repertoire to all reggae. I got a better slot the following semester. I called my show Babylon by Bus, the name of a Bob Marley album. I had a fancy recorded intro I had edited together. I got a girlfriend, Mary. Sometimes she'd come to the station with me and laugh at my jokes. It was such a relief to be in the company of a woman who thought I was super interesting and not just a weirdo. She was still in high school, so I was like a status symbol. 
her friends could tune in and hear me on the radio Wednesday nights before their bedtimes. So I was finally appreciated by someone. I was sharing my love of Bob Marley with the greater Fitchburg area, but I wasn't happy. I felt just as alienated as I had been in Billerica. That summer, Mary and I went to a Ziggy Marley concert at the Cape Cod Melody Tent. I had this tiny tape recorder, and I thought about bringing it because I had a clear vision of somehow getting backstage and asking Ziggy to record a promo for my radio show. But even at 19, I knew that wasn't gonna happen, so I left my recorder at home. The concert was great. Mary didn't even have to pretend to like it. At one point, the Marley family brought their kids onto the stage, and Bob's grandchildren started jumping up and down to the music. Then the band joined them while they played, and the whole audience started jumping in unison. It was a rare moment of feeling like I was a part of something. And briefly, it freed me from my self-conscious, self-conscious, self-consciousness. On the way out of the concert, something caught my eye. There were 10, maybe 15 fans huddled in a clump outside a tent uh, with concert t-shirts, and a dreadlock man in a sports coat approached them. He said, if you wanna see Ziggy Marley, you need to make a line right here. <laughs> Minutes later, I was in a small line moving through a tent that functioned as a backstage. My vision was coming true. I didn't care that I had no recorder with me. I was about to meet the firstborn son of my hero. <laughs> then I heard it. I seriously thought I was imagining it at first. This is Ziggy Marley and you're listening to 88.1, blah, 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 something awesome, blah, blah. The guy, two people ahead of me, brought a recorder and asked Ziggy to do a promo for his radio show. In a daze, I met Ziggy Marley, shook his hand, he signed my concert t-shirt, we left. I felt like there had to be some meaning behind this event. Like, what are the odds we'd accidentally wind up in an obscure line to meet Ziggy just like I dreamed? What are the odds that someone else had Ziggy record a promo for his radio station just like I'd wanted to, right in front of me in line? Laying awake at night, trying to make sense of this, I came to a secret conclusion. Bob Marley was sending me a message from beyond the grave. And why not? I put so much love and devotion into my communion with him. Why wouldn't he commune back? Was he thanking me? Was he telling me not to give up on Babylon by bus? Maybe this was Bob's way of saying, see, kid, I see you there in Fitchburg, fighting the good fight. Your show is good. I believe in you. I found out that Ziggy was still in the area. That felt like a sign. I called a new venue and they told me the band would be signing autographs in their bus afterward. Boom, another sign. It seemed like Bob was already telling me, son, you will get that promo. So, I'm currently at the front of the line. This is my moment. I put my right foot on the step and my hand on the railing and then that same dreadlocked gentleman with the sports coat walks down the stairs and gently nudges me backwards. I was gonna have to wait. Hold on, folks. Ladies, all the ladies, come on the bus first. <laughs> a dozen or so women stream onto the bus while I wait. I'm nervous, so I ask the dreadlock man, I'll, I'll be next, though, right? Of course, he says. And he gets on the bus behind the women. The doors close. The bus starts. I hear an air brake. 
and then the melody makers drive away with a dozen New England women. It was at that moment I realized I'd misunderstood Bob's message. It wasn't encouragement. It was the message you get when you discover the cool kids were hazing you and you were never going to get into their club. No joke, people. I could hear my hero laughing at me. Things turned dark for me that summer, so I saw a counselor. In our first meeting, she took a look at my shirt and said, Oh, Bob Molly, I used to live in Jamaica and I knew him. Great guy. She let me ask a bunch of questions about him, and I felt my faith in Bob's love restored. I mean, again, what are the odds? Then she lit up a cigarette, and she smoked and, and flipped through paperwork while I talked. She insulted me a, a little, and soon after, she left me in the room with a pillow she asked me to pretend was my mother. I stared at it for 20 minutes until she came back to tell me the session was over. So I guess Bob wasn't done laughing at me. And soon after, my mom washed my autograph concert t-shirt. I went back to school and back to Babylon by bus, and the mistakes and the awkwardness continued until I eventually quit. I was losing my passion for Bob's music. My passion for everything faded, and I smoked too much, drank too much, and one night threw a rock through the dean's office window. Eight months later, I was just doing my friend a favor when I agreed to stage manage the student production of The Marriage of Betty and Boo. And I was only trying to do a good job when I filled in for the lead and really dug into the part. And when we lost the lead, I was surprised and flattered when the director asked me to take the role. And I was scared out of my mind and worried I'd made a terrible mistake when I walked on stage near the top of the show. I hit my mark in a spot and felt for the first time a room full of people staring at me. There I was, Andy the Misfit, the guy who's always separate from the crowd, and I still was, but the crowd was watching me. And when I spoke those first few lines, I stopped watching me. That feeling of having a thousand songs inside me came back, but this time I knew exactly what to do with that energy. And with every line, Every laugh, I gave more and more of myself over to my audience in an act of communion. And then, for the first time in my life, I felt seen. This story was produced by Kit Ryan, curated by Latanya Lane, and directed by Max Spitz, with music and sound design by Nick Ward. The Second Story podcast is produced by me, Max Spitz. Second Story is supported by the MacArthur Fund for Art and Culture at the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation, the Gaylord and Dorothy Donnelly Foundation, a city arts grant from the City of Chicago Department of Cultural Affairs and Special Events, our 2018-2019 season sponsor, Skadden, Arp, Slate, Meager, and Flom, the Leopardo Charitable Foundation, and many generous individuals like you. I'm Max Spitz, and this, this is the Second, Second Story Podcast. Podcast.